In this episode, Matt Kelly and I unpack the SAP trade sanctions enforcement action for doing business directly and indirectly with Iran. Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. In this podcast, we're going to take a at least a dive. We may take additional dives into the SAP export control settlement uh, that came out last week. Matt blogged about it, and uh, we wanted to visit with you about it. So, Matt, first of all, welcome. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. So, Matt, this uh, was, I think, the first settlement, export control settlement under the new OFAC uh, export control program. There was lots to unpack from the substantive violations, from the uh, how SAP remediated this and how the government uh, evaluated the conduct of SAP and indeed in the uh, non-prosecution agreement. Where do you want to start? Uh, well, you know, we could probably just start with the facts of the case. Uh, so this came out fairly late Thursday afternoon, and uh, I popped it up last Friday, but the case is still relatively new. Um, what happened was that in the 2010s, from 2010 into, I think, well into 2017, SAP, which is one of the world's largest business software providers, Uh, They were violating U.S. sanction law by allowing software sales or downloads or software patches to customers or businesses or users who were in Iran. Uh, So big violation of U.S. sanctions law, if you have anything to do with Iran. And uh, basically what happened was SAP violated this in four different ways. Uh, First, they were releasing software patches, upgrades, and other products, and all of that that you could download through an operating center in the United States called the Content Delivery Provider. Uh, So anybody anywhere in the world could go to the Content Delivery Provider facility in the United States and download your SAP patch. And apparently, a lot of Iranian interests did that repeatedly throughout the 2010s. So there was a whole bunch, a whole bunches and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of uh, software violations that way. Uh, each one of those downloads was a sanctions violation. Uh, we had some SAP partner firms around the world in Germany. SAP is a German firm, by the way. Uh, Turkey, Malaysia, in Dubai, uh, they were selling SAP software to shell companies that were actually fronts for Iranian interests. So 14 more violations of U.S. sanctions law. Uh, There were apparently a number of large multinational companies that were legitimate SAP customers and had business in Iran. And if you're not a global business, if you're not a U.S. business, you could probably straddle that fence, except you couldn't have SAP selling support to your, you, you couldn't be buying SAP software for your business operations in Iran. But that did happen 
with 31 large multinational companies. Who are those companies? We don't know. Uh, and then fourth, and this I think was actually most interesting, was that SAP throughout the uh, 2010s, like many large tech companies, went on a hiring spree, bought a lot of US-based cloud software providers. So SAP owns Ariba, which is a big uh, payment system. I think it owns Concur, it owns SuccessFactors, which is an HR management software business, owns all of these firms and then allowed Iranian interests to access their services through the cloud because they did not geo-screen the IP addresses of their SAP users to screen out anybody with an IP address in Iran, which is a pretty straightforward thing to do. And SAP did not do it. So we have four different ways that SAP was violating sanctions law. We had a total of, I think, 25,000 individual sanction violations. So the U.S. Justice Department, uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, and the Commerce Department in its um, Bureau for Industry and Security, all three of them had a joint enforcement against SAP announced $8 million in penalties, $5.1 million more in uh, profit disgorgement, and then also a three-year non-prosecution agreement. Um, those are just the facts of what happened, and we can get into the compliance program response, which is really interesting, but like, you don't see too many big cases like this uh, in the realm of Iranian sanctions violations, so this was notable. Man, I think one of the things that uh, grabbed my attention uh, in the non-prosecution agreement was the DOJ made very clear that SAP stepped forward and not only investigated this matter thoroughly, but also remediated extensively, but also cooperated with the Department of Justice, uh, with OFAC, and perhaps other agencies of, of the U.S. government. It seemed that it was was pretty robust. Did I? Uh, is that the sense you got? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the acting head of the Justice Department's National Security Division, who were the lead prosecutors here, they flat out said as much. Um, they are the actual quote, I think, from John Demers, who was an assistant attorney general. Uh, he said that uh, this could have been far worse had they not disclosed, cooperated and remediated. We hope that other businesses, software or otherwise, will heed this lesson. Um, it looks like from the facts that have been disclosed here, uh, of course, we had a couple of whistleblower allegations come in over the course of the years. And where did they go? It looks like it's unclear how responsive SAP was to internal whistleblowers trying to raise alarms. But at some point by 2017, uh, it was doing an internal investigation into its potential sanctions violations, realized we have a problem and we have a big problem potentially. Uh, but still, SAP went to the Justice Department and OFAC and the Commerce Department and confessed its sins. Uh, undertook several different remediation steps, and the Justice Department singled out six steps. We can talk about those in a moment. Um, but the other interesting point was that the Justice Department's press release did say SAP spent more than $27 million on its remediation efforts. So they do get a non-prosecution agreement and another interesting point, Tom, is you did say this is the first settlement we have under the Export Control Compliance Program, which is really just the FCPA corporate enforcement policy applied to export control violations. Same three things, self-disclose, remediate, cooperate. 
Uh, this is the first one that we have under the export control policy. But if you go back to when they announced it in 2019, which I did, and you look at the aggravating factors that would typically lead to charges or some sort of much more serious uh, accusation, that would include um, long and pervasive misconduct, which, okay, seven years, uh, rather egregious conduct. Okay, yeah, you know, you didn't put in IP tracking, which is pretty standard these days. Uh, there were several different aggravating factors SAP did have, according to the policy that had been announced in 2019. They still get away with a non-prosecution agreement, um, which seems like a good resolution to me. And here we have the Justice Department explicitly saying, guys, it's because they lived up to the program. So I guess one lesson here is even if you have some pretty egregious and aggravating stuff going on, it's still going to be worth it to fall on your sword, come clean, remediate, and you will get a, a favorable resolution, um, according to the DOJ and the very nice statement that they put out about SAP's cooperation last week. So the other thing was the proposed or original uh, penalty was pegged at, according to your blog, was pegged at the uh, by the DOJ uh, at 27. Yet we have $8 million in penalty among the Department of Justice, OFAC, and Commerce. So it looks like they got a pretty hefty discount for the work they did under the corporate enforcement policy. Would that be correct? It looks like it. And I, I follow OFAC enforcement actions specifically. I follow them pretty closely. And you see that a lot with the OFAC deals is they will say the statutory maximum for whatever misconduct in question is $8 zillion. Uh, but we have decided this is not egregious. We have decided that when we weigh the aggravating factors and whatnot, it'll be a civil penalty of only $1 zillion. And now we're going to do more of our factors and calculations. And it's not going to be a zillion. It's going to be 500000 Or in SAP's case, it's $8 million. But there's an awful lot of discounting that does go on from the statutory maximums, which are always sky high. But still, I think it's very clear and correct to say that SAP could have had a much bigger punch in its teeth, and they didn't. Um, it makes $32 billion a year in revenue, so it's not like even $13 million. It's going to be a big sting. But nonetheless, uh, things could have been worse for SAP, and they weren't. And all through all of these releases, everybody is pointing to the great cooperation and remediation that SAP gave once they did realize we have a problem, we need to come clean. So, Matt, the um, technical steps followed by SAP to obtain the uh, finding or rather the resolution they did, I thought, uh, were uh, pretty well laid out and are very instructive. To me, I really uh, appreciated your larger point that you ended your blog post with, that uh, having automated due diligence is certainly something that everyone uh, should have in place. And OFAC has really made that a, a cornerstone, I think, of what they view as the best practices in compliance and a compliance program. But it's really a much bigger issue. It, it's, number one, the human element, but you phrased it in this is not third parties, this is risk management. And you have to take a much broader approach. I was wondering, one, did I interpret you correctly? And two, could you maybe expand upon that part of your blog post a little bit? Well, I do think that uh, it was interesting to see that OFAC and the Justice Department talked a lot about the automated screening 
And uh, you're right that I like FCPA compliance people are going to understand that's probably a good way to handle third party due diligence is to automate it because otherwise you're going to have a lot of work. But it doesn't actually say anywhere in the FCPA statute or in all the guidance that you have to use automated screening software or we're going to nail you to the wall. Well, in export controls, yeah, they do say that. It is very clear in their uh, guidance about what an effective export program is that you should use automated screening software. And if you miscalibrate your software, we will nail you on a violation and we'll impose a fine, which OFAC has done. And now it's happening again here. So it really drives home the point that you know if you're going to be doing due diligence for third parties in one way, you really should be doing it for your third parties in all potential ways that the third party might bring you grief. For big global companies, that is going to include export controls. And a lot of it is just knowing who are your third parties. Uh, With export control, I think it's a lot more about who is your customer. In FCPA land, it's a lot more about who is my vendor or who is my agent. Um, and maybe a little bit less important about who is your customer, although that's still going to be important. But all of this is just like, how much do we want to kind of sort of duplicate what we're doing for third-party risk oversight? And like, knock yourself out because you could duplicate it a whole lot of ways, or you could take a much more unified um, chief third-party risk oversight officer sort of a role, um, whether that's a FCPA compliance officer, an export controls officer, some sort of chief risk officer who knows how to do very comprehensive oversight of third parties. That's where we're getting to. I mean, how often are, Tom, are you and I going to go through a different case next month that's going to talk about a third party that somehow brought some sort of regulatory grief to the company we're talking about? It just it goes on and on. Um, So you really should be thinking about how can you get a more comprehensive approach to your third parties? Matt, there were two other areas of risk that uh, came up for me when I read the uh, non-prosecution agreement. You touched on one a little bit earlier when you talked about uh, mergers or, or actually just acquisitions by SAP of cloud service providers in the United States who really had insufficient uh, export control programs and those were not remediated or brought up to SAP standards. But the second part was the patches that went out and sort mm-hmm. of the ongoing standard communications almost every software company has with its customers in terms of either routine maintenance and support, ongoing patches and bug fixes, and other communications. And it pointed up to me, pointed out to me that uh, due diligence and indeed third-party risk management is not either a one-time uh, uh, procedure or even a series of steps, but it's an ongoing relationship. And that simply because you have a customer um, that you previously approved, if you continue to do business and communicate with that customer and that customer is then passing that information along, you're going to get in trouble like SAP did. Uh, What did you see in in either or both of those situations? Well, I think that really drove home the point that uh, for a lot of businesses these days, and especially a lot of technology firms, you're not going to have a one-time transaction with your customer where you could figure out physically, where is this person? They're in Iran. I'm not going to do any business with them. You don't necessarily know that uh, if you're doing some sort of online transaction. But if you are a selling software, then 
you're going to be wind up providing follow-up software patches, vulnerability fixes, upgrades, and whatnot. Everybody who has an iPhone knows that you have a long-term relationship with Apple now because you're downloading their latest iOS. Uh, I'm sure that's the same for all the other devices and whoever else is, has uh, other sort of non-Apple products in your home. You know, you wind up with a much more longitudinal relationship with your customer and also coupled with the fact that it's an online transaction only, an online relationship only. So you really have to start thinking much more about who are these people? Where are they coming from? That's not difficult to find out. You can check IP addresses and you can find out who are your customers downloading from North Korea or Iran, or they were downloading in Jordan first, but now for whatever reason, they're in Iran this year. When did that happen? Well, now it's a violation. You can check those things. The technology does exist. And the regulators were very clearly saying through the SAP enforcement action here that the tech exists, so you got to put it into place. Uh, also, Tom, it is well worth noting that SAP does sell screening software. So that is just one more slightly ironic or poetic twist to this little case. I'm not quite sure where the misconfiguration of their screening tools, especially for their U.S.-based cloud service providers. I'm not sure where that all went off the rails or if people were using SAP software um, within SAP. or out of, We don't have that detail, but I do know that SAP does sell screening software and it just got dinged on having inappropriately constructed or operated screening software. So that's why it's it's fun to be in this business. The uh, nonprofit agreement also mentioned uh, briefly national security issues. That's not something we typically see in an FCPA settlement, uh, but with the owing imbroglio between the uh, United States and Iran, uh, would we expect to see national security raise its head in these types of export control issues going forward? I mean, I think it could. I think it would depend on the company. And, you know, for example, um, SAP, do they sell software that could conceivably be used to run a large organization developing terrorism weapons in Iran? Sure, they could. Yeah, they run. They SAP makes great software that large businesses all over the world use. And so if it wound up supporting the Iranian Department of Missile Research, that would not be good for SAP. And that would be very much be a national security concern. I have no idea who the actual Iranian interests were. That's not disclosed in any of these documents, who they were, who were getting SAP downloads. But in theory, if you are selling into these national security um, targets, Iran, North Korea, um, possibly Venezuela and a couple of other highly corrupt places, uh, you have to think that, yeah, you're going to wind up talking with the National Security Division. And you're right. We don't often talk about it, Tom, but here we are. It happens. Turns out there was really a lot to unpack from this order. We had uh, our traditional favorite of due diligence. We've had risk management. We've had mergers and acquisitions. We had uh, red flags raised by, by external uh, law firm. We had potential uh, in-house whistleblowers. Uh, before we even got to the remediation or the steps uh, SAP took. With all of that going on, or there's two or three things that uh, you could uh, synthesize this down to? Well, you know, I'm actually really interested in how this action corresponds to OFAC's guidance on an effective export control compliance program, which I think OFAC put out in either 2018 or 2019. It's been around. Um, 
But OFAC really did communicate in that guidance that your sanctions compliance program is not going to be easy. This is a complex thing. You are well served if you are a large company with export control issues to have a dedicated sanctions compliance team that handles all of this stuff. And you really do have to be on the technology you use to keep track of these constantly changing lists of who is or isn't on a sanctions list. Um, and that's just within the U.S. We haven't even mentioned that you have U.K., Canadian, uh, other sanctions, uh, other countries with their own sanctions regimes or EU sanctions. So this gets very complicated very quickly. And um, ultimately, you're going to solve that by having really competent human talent operating really well calibrated and thoughtful technology. And that's zero in on those six things that uh, the six remediation steps that the GOJ praised. That's what it's all about. It is about correctly configuring the tech because you have human export control expertise who know what they're doing. Um, and so I like you're going to have to have that if you wind up with export control risks. OFAC and the Justice Department are clearly saying those things are not a joke. Take it seriously. I don't think I can. Could have said it or asked for it to be said any better. So let's just end on that. All right, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. We're going to link to Matt's blog post on this topic in our show notes. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email Tom at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I would urge you to check out some of the other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. We have a great series from Mikhail Ryder Gordon on the Wirecard Saga. This week on the Compliance Life, we have the final episode from Jonathan Kellerman. The Compliance Into the Weeds podcast is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.